everybody and welcome to a new episode of Evie's Korean Drama Podcast Show. My name is Evie, I'm your host, and I am a K-drama obsessive. So this is the show where I waffle on about all of the K-drama that I love. If you'd like to support the show, you can check out my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Evie Korean Drama Podcast. There you will find extra podcast episodes and updates on what I'm watching at the moment. Also, just before I get started, please be warned that I do swear a little bit on this show when I get excited. And when I'm talking about K-drama, I always get excited. Alright, so I thank you very, very much for listening and let's get on with the K-drama show. everybody and welcome to episode 91 of my show. Uh, this is Lee Evie and the drama that I have picked to chat about with you guys today is called River Where the Moon Rises. So this drama is a historical saguk. Uh, it's 20 episodes long and it started airing in kind of early 2021 and finished at the end of April 2021. So when I say historical, I want to say it's like, it's kind of serious, uh, not as like greedy serious as some dramas I've seen, but I think that it's not a very like, it's like a sweeping tragic romance and it's pretty epic on scale. I feel like it's very hard to talk about this drama without obviously talking about some of the controversies and the issues that this drama faced. Um, I, you know, I, I'm going to guess that a lot of uh, listeners probably already know all this stuff. Um, but, you know, this is a drama that I, I was super, super excited about. Like, I just couldn't wait for it. Um, the lead actress in this one is played, um, oh, sorry, the lead character in this <laughs> is played by the actress Kim So-hyun, who I just really, really love. Um, I definitely follow her around K-drama land and and I just love historicals so much. So the idea of her being like an ambitious princess kind of warrior woman and, you know, this being this very epic love story um, based on a folktale. I, you know, I was just really, really excited for the show. So obviously I was watching it live um, when it first came out week to week and... <sighs> I'm not like going to go into super, <laughs> super details on all this kind of stuff because I feel like I like to try and focus on all the positive stuff a little bit more and on the K-dramas themselves on this show. Um, but obviously there was an issue with the actor that had been cast um, in the in the lead role in this drama and after six episodes he left the show and it's, oh, the whole thing made me feel very unhappy and quite depressed. And, but like, aside from, I guess, you know, all the rest of it, I was just loving the show. I was really, really excited about this show. It was kind of like my most anticipated show for 2021. And then when I started kind of seeing all this stuff online, you know, aside from any other feelings, <laughs> I was just really sad that the show was gonna be shit. <laughs> how could a show with an actor swap not be shit was kind of how I 
kind of thought about it, I guess. And I just felt so terrible for the cast and crew who had poured so much time and effort and money into this thing, into like, you know, I, I feel like a drama in a lot of ways is a work of art. It's a piece of art. It's someone's creative endeavor. It's, you know, a beautiful story that someone's written that people are acting out and people are creating. Um, I have so much respect for all these things. And I understand, particularly with the live shooting schedule in Korea, like this stuff is not easy for people. And I just felt so sad that potentially this thing that they were all working so hard to make might just like <laughs> totally fail. Um, so I kept watching with the actor swap. And I was very, very happy, I guess, uh, when I heard the, the casting news of who the actor was going to be that they'd pulled in last minute to take over the lead role. And, you know, I found it jarring or whatever at the start. It was a weird experience. Since then, I know they've gone back and refilmed the first six episodes so that watchers can kind of watch it as just a complete drama without this sort of interruption with the lead actor swapping out. Um, but yeah, it's just, it was a weird thing. <laughs> it was a weird thing to kind of be live watching it when it happened. And I'm sure there's a lot of listeners who are in the same situation as me. Um, and I guess my thoughts around the drama as a whole, like now that I've finished watching the whole thing, is that I feel like it is a beyond a miracle that this show is coherent at all and that it's a watchable show and the thing that shocked me the most was you know when there was the actor swap I definitely felt like there was an episode there that was a little bit jarring but I felt like at least it happened at that point in the story because I felt like the focus was more on the female lead particularly right then or maybe that was only because of you know this kind of issue that had come up um but I was still addicted to it and this is the thing like even this huge kind of upheaval and I was still reaching for the next episode like looking forward to what was going to air the next week like every week and I was really surprised by how much I was able to still be just completely invested in the story and you know the characters and particularly you know the character of Ondal who you know is the male lead and had the actor swap and I don't know. Uh, the new actor, Nan U, is someone I really, really like, and he won me over, and I really love him. <laughs> so that's where I'm at with that. Um, I think what I'm going to do, you know, I've touched on it all, but I'm not going to go into details about all that stuff. It's all available online if you want to know the details behind it all. But I feel like this show is about, it's about K-drama itself. It's about the show. It's about the story. And it's about, I don't know how I feel when I'm watching these things, I suppose. And the way that they, yeah, I guess impact me emotionally. And I don't know. I, I really loved this story and I think I was so surprised that I could love it as much as I did when I feel like the production of it faced such incredible hardship. And I don't know, I feel like I have a lot of respect for the people involved in making it who just had to weather something pretty not great for them and just work so hard to create the whole thing anyway. So I don't know. And I think the actor Nanu, who obviously, you know, stepped in last minute and obviously would have had 
a huge amount of pressure on him. I think that would have just been so scary being in that position. And I thought he was really brave and I thought he did a really, really good job. Um, but also, I already had a soft spot for him from the previous drama I watched him in, which was Mr. Queen. And all right, that's my biggest side about, you know, all that kind of behind the scenes stuff uh, that was going on with River Where the Moon Rises. Um, but now I'm just going to get back into my regular programming as I talk about this K-drama in the way that I think that I normally would. So that's kind of my overview of the show. I, I really liked it. I liked it a lot. Um, so why I watched it, obviously, it was just... I couldn't wait for this fucking show to come out. I was so bonkers excited. Um, so the casting, I'll talk about a little bit. As I mentioned, the female lead is played by the actress Kim So-hyun, Kim So-hyun who I really, really love. Uh, so she plays a princess, a very ambitious princess. The whole drama is set in, <laughs> can I pronounce it correctly, Gogoryo. So in English, it looks like you would say... Gogoyo, but in the drama, everyone says Gogoro. Uh, and that is obviously a very, very, so it's part of the Three Kingdom period in Korean history. So I think this is around, I believe it's around the 500s. Um, so yeah, a long time ago and a long time before Joseon uh, began the Joseon dynasty in Korean history, which is, you know, I feel like so many historical K-dramas are much more usually set in the Joseon period. I don't know if that's just because it's slightly more modern history. Maybe there's more information about it um, in terms of, you know, all these incredible kind of stories that come out with the royal families and all these coups and these political stuff. Um, but yeah, a Gokoro, <laughs> so hard for me to say. Gokoro is a period in Korean history that I know personally much less about. Um, I'm much less familiar with, you know, the history at all, the clothes, the royal family, the kind of the customs and any of this kind of stuff. So this drama was it was really interesting for me, I think, with that setting in Gokoro because yeah, it was just really unfamiliar. And for someone who's watched like a lot of historical dramas, it was interesting to feel like I was sort of back at square one, particularly after all, you know, I've read a lot of sort of research books and history books um, about particularly, you know, Joseon dynasty. And I feel like, you know, I don't know everything about that. I'm no scholar, but I certainly have tried to learn, you know, as much as I can. Um, but yeah, seeing this one, I just felt, I was like, wow, I have no idea what this period of history is at all, which was kind of fun. I love getting introduced to new eras in history through, you know, the dramas I watch and the shows that, that I love. I think that's kind of fun. Uh, so the actress Kim Soo-hyun, as I was saying, plays the main character, who is a princess called Pyongang, uh, also known um, once she, you know, hits her head and gets amnesia as Gajin. So I'll probably just call her Gajin in this uh, review or the princess. So the male lead originally was played by Jisoo, but he dropped out because of this controversy. Um, and the role then, so the role being Ondal, was then taken over by the actor Nayanu. So Nayanu, I had seen before, like so recently. I feel like it's kind of crazy because I, I watched Mr. Queen, um, but I watched that really late. I didn't watch it as it was airing at all. 
And that was my first experience um, with the actor Nayanu. He plays the second male lead in Mr. Queen. And I really noticed him in that drama. If anyone has listened to my Mr. Queen episode, uh, which I've got up in, you know, in my past episodes there on this show, uh, you'll probably realize that I really, really loved him. And I feel like in that review... I might have talked about him a little bit too much. <laughs> so I certainly had very warm feelings toward this actor before, you know, and then I heard he got the role and I feel like there was a moment of, I was like, oh, maybe, maybe this show is going to be okay. I don't know. Um, so yeah, I thought he did a really good job. He plays the character Ondal. So for those who don't know, um, I think Perhaps a lot of listeners will. So the folk tale of Princess Pyongang and Ondal the Fool is unbelievably famous kind of folk tale in Korean history. Um, I first heard about it, like kind of came across it, I suppose, in my K-drama watching journey, <laughs> if you want to call it that, um, kind of many, many, many years ago, I guess, when I first started watching K-drama. Um, I watched this really old show that was from 2009 and it was called Invincible E Pyong Kang. So Invincible E Pyong Kang starred the actor Ji Hyun Woo. So Ji Hyun Woo is from Queen and Hyun's Man and many other dramas as well. And Invincible E Pyong Kang is such a weird show. It's totally like just a silly old rom-com you know like uh enemies to lovers kind of a story set on like this weird golf course in the middle of like rural korea it's a contemporary story but the whole story which i love for some reason obsessively i love this drama invincible ep hong kong i don't know why it's so old and weird um but i was obsessed with it. i think i watched it twice which i feel embarrassed to admit now because it's so old and creaky um but interestingly you know the, the main characters in that drama uh, the characters' names were Ondal and Pyongang, um, although it was a contemporary set story about a golf course, which, frankly, as someone who doesn't like golf, could anything be more boring than that? But also, it wasn't. I really liked it, <laughs> for whatever reason. Who knows? How <laughs> embarrassing. Um, but every single episode of that really old, creaky drama um, was kind of framed by these like little historical snippets, which would have the main characters from this contemporary modern drama sort of playing out their roles in the Pyongang Ondal folktale. So that was my first experience with a folktale and it's kind of, you know, I'm going to talk about this a little bit later, but the folktale is pretty much, um, you know, very ambitious princess <laughs> and a complete idiot of a dude, Ondal, Ondal the Fool or Ondal the Idiot as he's known, who is also like a totally epic soldier who becomes a general and it's a real rags to riches story, which has in the folktale an unbelievably tragic ending. Um, so that was my first experience with a folktale and I feel like I've seen it mentioned like in other dramas since then as well. So again, that's another reason why I was super excited about this, because I kind of knew the general gist of, you know, the love story trajectory, um, although I was very terrified about how the drama would end, considering the end of the folktale. 
Uh, all right, so that was me talking about Ondal and his character, played by the actor Nayanu from episode 7 onwards, although I guess now the whole thing. Um, and then the other actors that I'll mention in this one, so the second male lead is played by an actor called Iji Hoon, uh, and his character is General Go, or General Gon? Go, I think. Um, I really recognize this dude's face, this actor. I'm not really sure what else he's been in. I could look it up, but I haven't. <laughs> so I guess I won't. Uh, he surprised me. I didn't think I was, I don't know. I found him to be very charismatic. I thought that his character was quite interesting. I feel like there was some slip ups with some of the kind of emotional trajectory that his character went on, um, which I will talk about later. But yeah, I liked him a lot more than I thought I was going to. Um, and the second female lead is played by an actor who I have never seen before, I don't think, uh, called Che Yu Hua. Che? Che Yu Hua. Uh, and her character's name is Moyong. Sorry about my pronunciation. It's not always very good. <laughs> I'm trying my best here. <laughs> so Moyong is kind of, or oh, she's like a mysterious store owner. Everyone just calls her store owner, which I was like, wow, what a nickname. <laughs> um, but she was interesting. I found her very intriguing. There's a lot of other kind of, you know, I guess very familiar faces in this drama. It has quite a wide cast. Um, and the only other one that I think I will mention... Oh, well, I guess Kang Han No, who's a quite a famous actor, plays Ondal's dad in the flashbacks. And... Um, also, uh, Princess Pyongang's little brother, once he grows up, is played by an actor called Kwon Hwaun. Uh, Hwaun, I should say, I think. Uh, so that's when he becomes king, uh, King Yong. King Yongyang. <laughs> Very hard names in this one. Uh, but I just mentioned the actor Kwon Hwaun because he played the second male lead very recently. I think it was in Zombie Detective, which I just also covered on the podcast. So that was quite interesting for me because I feel like, you know, I don't know, sometimes there's new faces and they sort of just pop up and then suddenly they're everywhere. Um, so yeah, I'll kind of keep an eye out and see, I guess, what he does as well. He just seems like someone who keeps popping up. So that's the kind of casting that's like, it's a pretty big cast because obviously there's a lot of ministers, there's a lot of warriors, there's a lot of randoms, and a lot of people wearing a lot of wigs because, you know, it's Gogoro and apparently wiggy wigs is what's going on in this drama. All right, so my last, I guess, little thing I wanted to touch on before I move into the setup of the story and tell you guys a bit about, you know, what this drama is about is should you watch A River Where the Moon Rises? Yeah, I think so. I definitely think so. I feel like against all odds, this is, for me personally, like, you know, obviously I can only talk about my own feelings around this show, but I was addicted to it. I was waiting every week for the new episodes to air, even after this kind of very jarring episode or two with the actor swap, which obviously, you know, it's not fully, fully coherent. But I think they did, I think they did a much better job than I ever expected during that crossover. And I feel like they just sort of hit the ground running. So for me, yes, I think this is a really good drama. I really, really enjoyed it. I think if you like historicals, <laughs> then it's something that you should definitely, definitely check out. Um, I also liked, I don't know, I like, oh, I guess I'll talk about this when I get to my stuff that I loved, but I did really like the kind of atmosphere of it and the feel of it. And I liked the kind of stuff that the romance was talking about in terms of, 
I don't know, being battle wary and, and the kind of, I guess, the emotional arc that the character Ondal is going on. Um, so, yeah, I found it. I found it really moving in the end, um, particularly towards the end or, you know, I just really, really enjoyed the whole thing much more than I was kind of worried <laughs> that I might after everything happened with the production. So yeah, I'm, I really think that you should. And I guess at this point, uh, I imagine by the time, you know, as this, this podcast comes out and goes live, um, I think it will be the whole drama with the actor Nayanu because they are refilming, uh, or probably already have, I guess, by the time I'm recording this, the first six episodes. Um, so I, I imagine it'll be just, you know, it'll be a coherent drama and I guess new viewers to the show probably won't even notice the kind of upheaval and, and everything that happened behind the scenes there which I suppose is a good thing for the viewers. <laughs> All right, I'm going to get up in uh get get up into get onto the setup of this drama River Where the Moon Rises. All right. So the story. So Kim So Hyun's character. Oh, it's really confusing at the start, actually, because Kim So Hyun, the actress, plays both herself. I meant not herself, but she plays the main character, uh, Gajin, Princess Pyongang, also known as Gajin, but she also plays that character's mum. So it's a little bit confusing because I feel like when the drama starts, we start in flashback mode in, uh, you know, in their history. And we're basically being introduced to our main female lead character, Gajin, as a child. And as a child, she's, of course, played by a different actress who is a small child. And her mother, the small child's mother, is played by Kim Soo-hyun. <laughs> so I was like, whoa, what's going on? It's really confusing. It probably isn't that confusing. <laughs> I kind of found it confusing. So anyway, uh, Queen Yeon is kind of guardian, our main character, who is a child at this point's mum. And her dad is King Pyongwon, played by the actor Oh, Kim Poble. I feel like I'm pronouncing that very incorrectly because the English just that doesn't look quite right. Anyway, uh, I liked this king. I mean, I didn't like the character. Oh my gosh, he was a horrible character, but I thought the actor did a really well. And he had like a crazy deep voice, which I think really suited his sort of big kingly kind of vibes. Uh, he's a total nutcase, though. So King Pyongwon is the king of. Gokuro, <laughs> trying to pronounce that correctly. Uh, and he is, you know, he's got a couple of wives there, but his main wife and his favorite wife is Queen Yon, who is our main character, Gajin's mother. So Queen Yon seems about a million fucking times more switched on to what's going on politically in the country than her, like, slightly silly, but, you know, with a nice deep voiced husband kind of seems to have. And she is sort of, I think she's pretty aware that the royal family don't exactly have as much power as maybe it would be nice for the royal family to have. And there is this kind of system in Gokuro that has, um, I guess, these big kind of very powerful family clans. So I think there's like 
four of them or five of them at the start of the drama, maybe four, I can't remember actually. And each of them have like the head who is sort of like a big minister to the king who, you know, have these big kind of wealth behind them. But each of these different clans also has like a private army. So, you know, some of them are kind of running the country a little bit is the impression that I got. I feel like the first like episode of this or maybe the first couple of episodes of this drama like before we get into the very like human elements of the story which is of course like Gajin's struggle for survival and her growing up and you know all this kind of stuff that our main character the princess goes through I think at the start we're really kind of just thrown into this very very complicated political situation with a lot of sort of characters who are you know very motivated and underhanded and involved in you know maybe not doing a lot of good stuff um including one of the king's other wives so it was a little bit confusing for me at the start but I was kind of like eh, I'll just ride with this and we'll see you know we'll see where it goes and what happens um so basically Queen Yon who is Gajin's mom is quite aware that politically the royal family is you know it's a little bit unstable and she is really wanting I suppose to solidify their power and maybe bring that power back to her husband so I think I can't really remember I think it's something like Queen Yon's like to her you know to the baddies who are the main ministers in the court kind of like oh we're going on an, I don't know like a fucking country tour or whatever and she brings her daughter um, Pyongang who's Gajin I'm just going to call her Gajin to the princess um, and they kind of go off into the countryside and it's supposed to just be you know like a little nice countryside jaunt but what it actually is is the queen is going to meet this very famous general uh, who's played by that actor Kang Hanul uh, so this character's name is General On. So General On has a very young son Ondal and again played by you know a, a little child actor thing. <laughs> person probably not a thing <laughs> um so they kind of go out to this like rural place and there's this you know this clan out there and Kang Hanul's character is this big general on and he's someone with a lot of power and a you know very respect very respected man um and has obviously done a lot of great feats for his country um which you know I guess doesn't sit that well with our main baddies uh, so the the main bad dude, I'm just trying to find his little face here. I guess this is him, uh, Wonpyo. Uh, so he's of this very particular tribe, uh, you know, amongst the, I want to say, you know, the big political clans of the the royal court at this point. And Wonpyo is, you know, he basically doesn't want to lose this power, and he doesn't want General On to come in from the countryside and start giving the queen and therefore the king back the power that he's managed to, you know, I guess over the years sort of wrestle away. So he turns up back at the royal palace and he starts whispering in the king's ear and he's like, hey, king, your wife probably, you know, maybe your daughter's not actually your daughter, maybe it's some monk's daughter and your wife has been cheating on you and all this kind of stuff and because the king is like a total douchebag uh he goes fucking nuts and he kind of gives the okay for this minister Wonpyo uh to go and you know 
I don't know, fuck the whole tribe up. I'm going to call this Minister. Instead of calling him Wampyo, which is his name, I'm just going to call him Minister Go because I think that's easier for me to remember. Uh, so Minister Go is kind of given the go-ahead to get rid of this tribe that... I guess um, he's kind of talked the king into believing that the queen has gone to visit and the queen is like a traitor and the queen's having an affair and all this kind of stuff. So the king heads off to this uh, monastery, like this, I guess, Buddhist monastery or Buddhist temple where he believes this particular monk lives that the queen has been accused of having this affair with, you know, many, many years prior. And he like he goes fucking crazy and he murders everybody like he's the king is there with the sword like with blood crazed eyes just killing everybody and meanwhile um the queen has you know arrived to meet this general general on and kind of sent because she's seen that there's like you know this army advancing on them she realizes that her luck has run out basically and the whole tribe is going to kind of go down with her as traitors at this point um so she sends her daughter guardian off running into the hills with general on's little son which is ondal and the two of them escape but the queen gets murdered by minister go and also so does ondal's dad uh general on so there's a lot of death in these little kids history and then there's a lot of like I don't know climbing up this crazy cliff and um, Ondal falls off the cliff <laughs> he goes home uh, just in time to see his beloved dad get his head chopped off which is all as you can imagine fairly traumatic for everybody involved. Um, actually really really liked uh Kang Hanol's performance as General On, so Ondal's dad. I think I think he's just got so much like you know, he's so quiet and contained, but he has such a big presence and I felt like he was such a good like it really felt like he was I don't know, this world-weary general who had I don't know, like the weight of responsibility on this man who's very quiet and unassuming but you believed that he was a powerful dude. Um, I thought he did such a good job. And I was really moved by the relationship straight away between father and son. I found it really interesting. And basically, um, the last thing that General On ever says to his little son, Ondal, is, you know, go and live as a fool, basically. So give up on, you know, your right to be the next general, give up on this clan's heritage as a political power, just go with whoever has survived from this massacre, disappear into the mountains, live quietly and pretend to be a fool so no one will ever bother you again, basically. And it's really sad and moving, this scene. I really, really liked it and I felt a lot. Um, Ondal, obviously, you know, he can't really understand you know, his dad's intentions and I don't know, he, he kind of ends up going off and basically living in the mountains and that's what we see of him for a little while. Meanwhile, Guardian, so the princess, uh, I can't remember, like she, I don't know, climbs up the hill and then she's sort of really freaked out and, you know, Ondal saved her, but basically she thinks he's dead. He's not, but she thinks he is. And then she runs off to find her dad at this monk's temple and of course turns up right when he's being a complete lunatic and murdering everybody. So she has just a total meltdown. 
um, kind of, I think she just faints or some shit or someone kidnaps her. I can't really remember. <laughs> but she ends up in this den of assassins with this like head assassin dude who also seems to be like some sort of, um, I don't know, psychic, I guess, <laughs> something like that, a shaman. And this guy sort of does something to her, some sort of like spell thing, which means she loses her memory. So this head, uh, I nearly said head detective. He's definitely not that. He's an assassin. So this head assassin, um, he knows that Gajin is a princess, but he wipes her memory of her past and he tells her her name is Gajin. He just picks some old dude from the village and is like, hey, Gajin, this, this dude's your dad. <laughs> and then he trains her to be a fucking terrifying young woman. And the drama jumps forward quite a few years. And at this point, Gajin is scary uh, and very interesting and very, very scary. I feel like I feel like the action in this drama was really cool. I really liked it. I felt like the fight scenes were really cool. I felt like they looked, I don't know, sometimes you watch a fight scene and it looks very like, I don't know, stylized where there's no actual power behind, I guess, you know, hits and punches and like sword stabs and stuff. And I felt like this, like particularly watching uh, the actress Kim Soo-hyun as, you know, this grown up guardian, the assassin, like she did look really powerful and she looked really cool and she looked really scary. Um, but unfortunately for Guardian, uh, her head assassin dude, who she is absolutely, you know, in debt to, this group of assassins, uh, he is very much against the king because he has, you know, his own tragic backstory where the king was a douche to him, which, you know, I believe because this king is no good. He's just murdering everybody. <laughs> so she's kind of sent on a mission to go and kill the king. And I loved all this scene. I thought it was really cool. There's this, um, I guess, this kind of uh, ritual that's going on in the palace and it's all really beautiful. They have dancers coming in and the king's there to pray on this kind of big, you know, stone pedestal thing. And then suddenly like all this smoke goes off and Gajin turns up. She's posing as one, one of the dancers and it's all like, it looks really nice. I really liked all this stuff. And when he sees her, he sees his wife's face. Uh, and of course he sees his wife's face because the same actress played his wife. <laughs> but um, obviously this shocks him a lot because, you know, in the years since he, you know, fucking murdered everybody, he's not really sure if, I guess, you know, he had like a crazy bloodlust, I suppose. He got lost in this mad, jealous rage. And he's not entirely sure in hindsight that his wife was having an affair, that he did the right thing. And also, I imagine he's quite ashamed of what he's done. So seeing his wife's face on this woman, who he doesn't know that this is his daughter that he's seeing, absolutely sends him into an even worse spiral than he's already in. And the king turns into like, you know, he's he's asking for basically like these little, I don't know what they are, some druggy things from the local druggist who's the second female lead, who's this, you know, Mo Yong, the store owner. She um, runs a herb shop, a herb shop and she's creating these mad concoctions for the king, which is just turning him into, you know he's no good. He's really no good. He's just got, you know, women all over him and he's like threatening to murder everybody every two minutes. He's very scary and his wives are terrified of him. And his, you know, his two little sons that live in the palace with him are both terrified of him. He's so volatile. Like he's a terrible king. Um, so Gajin manages to escape after getting discovered during her, you know, assassination attempt. Um, but she gets wounded. 
And she ends up in the forest. And I forgot to say <laughs> that previous to this, she had randomly met Ondal in the forest. And Ondal had been like kind of a heart of gold, good, oh, I don't want to say fool, but like a little bit goofy and, you know, obviously not a great general, which is what he was initially destined to be before this terrible tragedy took his father away from him. And he became like a little... I don't know, mountain hermit man is how he's grown up, basically. Um, but we see that Ondal, you know, he's a very he's a very caring person because basically he comes across two hunters that have created this trap that's very painful for a deer. And Ondal, you know, saves the deer or I don't know if he has to kill the deer, I can't remember. And he kind of like, you know, it very easily because he's crazy strong, manages to bash up these, you know, poachers and stuff. And he kind of comes across Guardian and they just have like, it's basically a meat cute. And I really liked it. It was a really good scene. Um, and I don't know, she's obviously a little bit struck by him and he very much so, I think, obviously with her, but they part and then it's only really when Gajin is, you know, trying to escape through the forest, she's been slashed up, she's dying and he manages to, you know, kind of stumble upon her again and save her. And he brings her back home to his mum, who is not very interested um, to find Gajin, who is potentially a scary assassin, bleeding out in her house. Um, so I don't know, I really liked it. I feel like the whole relationship with Ondal and Gajin, you know, he he knows what she is. Like, he pretends to be a fool, but I don't think he's really a fool. He is living a simple life. He hasn't, you know, picked up a sword. He hasn't had that kind of education or, you know, martial arts training, but he's not like a total idiot, even though he's very sweet and he's very straightforward and simple in the things that he cares about and he wants. Um, but, you know, he knows that Gajin isn't whatever she, I can't even remember what she says she is, but she doesn't tell him that she's an assassin. But you know, he likes her. He likes her straight away. And so he helps her, even though Gajin herself is very surly and very taken aback by the fact that he's showing so much concern for her. And definitely all the other people in this village where Onda lives, uh, Ghost Village, I think it's called, um, you know, they don't want an assassin there because it's dangerous for them. And they're fucking right <laughs> because loads of soldiers and all sorts of crap happens um, because she is there. So I guess from there, like, I mean, that's the general setup. That's how our, character, our main characters meet. But what sort of goes from there is that eventually Gajin realizes that she's not just an assassin. She's, in fact, an amnesiac princess. And her rightful place is in, you know, the royal palace, um, which is basically falling apart at this point. So the whole, I guess, struggle for Gajin at the kind of the, I guess, the first third of the drama, I feel, is... Does she want to just live quietly in the mountain forever with Ondal? Or will she go back to the royal palace and take up her position as Princess Pyongang and make a difference for her country? Because, you know, stuff is not going that well in the palace and not going that well for her family. 
Um, so I think that's the that's the kind of struggle. And really, Gajin kind of decides to stay with Ondal, but through all these circumstances, and you know, a lot of it to do with the second male lead, she sort of gets forced back in. Um, I actually really loved it when she enters the palace. I found it really fun, just like I don't know, she's super loyal to her dumb dad, which I was kind of like, girl, he's no good. <laughs> and she sort of just has to let go the fact that you know, maybe Minister Go is responsible for shooting the arrow that murdered Gajin's mum, but, you know, it was it was Gajin's dad who allowed him to do so, you know, who allowed this thing to happen. It was his jealousy that fueled the whole tragedy. But also I understand, you know, he's the king and she has to give him absolute loyalty. Um, but one thing I really enjoyed about Gajin re-entering the palace was... I don't know, like, she's super badass when she gets, like, all fully dressed up in her cool kind of, like, princess outfits, and she starts kind of a battle of will, I suppose, with this Minister Go and her main political rivals, and she manages to kind of pull her stupid dad back from the brink of stupidness and <laughs> murderous rages and starts kind of shaming him, I think, into being a better king and, you know, fighting back because he's just given up. Like he knows that he's a puppet king. He knows he's got no actual power, even though he sits around and rages and pretends that he does. He doesn't. And I think she kind of forces him to face the truth of his position and try harder to fix things. Um, so I don't know, I actually enjoyed all the political stuff quite a lot, but I don't know, I always get a kick out of that kind of plotting and intrigue in dramas. I always think it's pretty fun. Um, and yeah, I enjoyed it in this one. And then, of course, as the drama goes on, you know, uh, basically, Gajin kind of gets forced into this position where she has to marry the second male Lee, but she doesn't want to. So she pretends that her and Ondal are already married. And that kind of brings Ondal into the palace. And that's when the drama... I suppose begins to deal with some of its main themes and its main themes are really around I guess in some ways Gajin's ambitions they're not really ambitions because she's not I mean they are but it's not about her furthering herself or gaining power for power's sake it is always about solidifying the position of the royal family so that once their father passes away Gajin's little brother will be able to safely you know, ascend to the throne without getting murdered by their political rivals. But she also seems to care, I guess, about the country as well. Like she doesn't want random war and things like that, as we see later. She wants to defend their borders and do the right thing. Um, but Ondal is a simple boy from the forest <laughs> who has very complex, complicated feelings around being a warrior, even though he clearly has the capability to do that, um, he doesn't really have the heart for it. And realistically, the drama kind of follows their relationship as these two people who love each other desperately, but also desperately kind of need different things. You know, she needs him to be this ugh, scary warrior to help her with this advancement and of, you know, gaining back power in the palace. And he needs her to fuck off back to the mountain with him so they can live quietly and collect herbs in the wilderness. <laughs> and seeing him try to force himself into 
the right shape to be her husband in the palace is at times I found kind of like really heartbreaking. It really moved me just seeing this man kind of deteriorating slowly in his heart because of the things that he is doing to protect the one that he loves. I found it really sad, <laughs> but also very addictive and good. Uh, so yeah, that's a general, like a pretty, yeah, it's so general overview. I mean, so much happens in this show, but that gives you a huge idea of what the general outline and setup is. So next I'm going to talk about the stuff that I loved. All right, so stuff that I loved about River Where the Moon Rises. First of all, what a fucking cool title. It's so like evocative and lovely. I really liked it, even though every time I said it, I always say moon where the river rises, which is incorrect and makes no sense. But anyway, so I guess the first thing that I put down on my little list of stuff that I loved is that this drama exists at all <laughs> as a coherent show. Um, I can't believe like... I can't believe how addicted I was. I really, you know, I really thought it was going to lose. I, I thought it was going to lose me. I really did. And I was so pleased that I just thoroughly enjoyed this one the whole way through. It definitely isn't perfect. I think that there are certainly some, oh, nothing major for me, to be honest, but like some threads that got dropped, which I'll talk about later. But Overall, I just, I thoroughly enjoyed it and I thought it was so much better than it had any right to be considering what it went through. Um, so another thing I really liked was kind of the general tone of the show. Like to me, the word that keeps coming back into my head is melancholy. I think that that feels right to me. There was this theme tune, um, you know, I guess it's probably the love, the love theme tune. Um, the love theme in the drama that I really, really liked. And it felt really sad. It's very quiet. It felt very small, but it felt, oh, I don't know. It's really hard for me to even explain what I mean, because, you know, this is a drama with people running around on horses and stabbing each other up and kings, you know, <laughs> burning down temples or whatever. But when I think of it, now that I finished watching it, it's always these really quiet moments between, you know, Gajin, the female lead, and Ondal, you know, her hero, that really are the, the parts that move me. And this sort of just, I guess, two, the two of them being at loggerheads, but feeling so much for each other, but not being able to make it work. And I feel like there's so many scenes throughout the drama that really... I don't know, just got me in my heart, particularly with that theme music and really made me feel this very melancholy kind of sadness at this, you know, almost the hauntingness of that kind of a story. Like there, even though, spoiler for the end, <laughs> it does have a happy ending. It still has this feeling of loss around the whole story. And I don't know if that's like, in some ways, I suppose, particularly around Ondal and his character is this idea of the loss of his innocence, you know, the loss of the kind of happiness he could have had. And I think Gajin could have had, even though she'd already sort of been through her own version of, of what Ondal experiences in this drama, because Gajin, you know, she's brought up as an assassin. She's scary. She murders a lot of people. She doesn't want to do that anymore. But once she steps up to being a princess for real in the palace, she's very much about 
I guess, being practical and, and ambitious and doing what she has to do. But, you know, you kind of, I feel like that sense of loss in the story is what would have Ondal and Gajin been like if when they first met, they could have just stayed in the mountains together quietly forever. So even though we get this I think, very beautiful, happy ending at the end of the show, there is still that feeling, that kind of bittersweet feeling of, yes, they're together and from now on they'll be happy, but you can imagine they're going to have particularly Ondal, you know, nightmares at night, you know, they're, they're not exactly okay. They've really been through something traumatic. And I think that's where the kind of melancholy threads its way through the story right to the very end. Um, but I really liked that feeling. It really kind of resonated in my heart, I suppose, if that makes sense. Um, so another thing I absolutely adored about this drama, which I think will come as no surprise to anybody, is the actress Kim Soo-hyun. Oh, she's so good. Uh, I loved her in this. I loved her so much. I felt like I kind of, I felt like this very sharp, scary kind of princess, like razor sharp. She can kill you and she looks fucking capable when she's riding around with big sword on a horse or fighting people in very scary desperate kind of con conditions wearing like full black armor and stuff like she just felt yeah very like I feel like I haven't really seen that side of her in dramas before and I like I know she's a great actress she's great in everything she does but I sometimes in this I just felt like she transformed completely and I you know into Pyongyang I suppose this very sharp kind of ambitious princess I loved it a lot I thought she was amazing um so the next thing, oh, and I, I guess I wanted to say too, it's an interesting thing to me because because the drama is set, you know, in this much older period of Korean history, um, it was interesting to see the women, you know, fully suited up in armor and fighting in battles and, you know, kind of she's a warrior princess basically. And there's all that kind of stuff, which I think it's a little bit less usual to see that in a Joseon set drama. And of course that makes sense too, because I do know that, you know, before the Joseon dynasty began in the 1390s, uh, that, you know, women in Korea in, you know, the periods of Korean history prior to that had enjoyed a lot more freedom and a lot more um, opportunities, I guess, to be different things and do different things and have more freedom and, you know, own more things and power and stuff like that in a way that during the Joseon dynasty, I feel like that wasn't really possible, particularly, you know, as that dynasty progressed, um, which is why I think, you know, Joseon set dramas usually represent women in you know, you don't see them in armor running around quite so much, but that's also, I suppose, because in Joseon, you know, I guess that kind of warrior kind of thing wasn't such a big deal, I suppose, or wasn't such a big thing or wasn't such a big social focus is what I should say, I guess because of the Neo-Confucianism and um, scholars being more like the desired thing. Anyway, I feel like I'm getting off topic. <laughs> anyway, what I was saying was I really fucking enjoyed seeing these cool women run around in armor and just be general awesome kind of warriors. It was really good fun. Uh, so the next thing on my list of stuff that I loved is the actor Nainu. Um, I really, really liked him in this. I think he's a great actor. Um, he has really nice deep voice <laughs> and isn't a lunatic like the King character was. Um, but I really liked his character. I liked his character a lot. I liked 
like I guess it's just that thing that I was talking about before that sense of loss and I feel like he really particularly in the last half of the drama there's just something so like underneath the surface that seems so like not bitter but not I don't know how to explain this yeah sense of loss I suppose of what he could have been and what he's trying to be and what what the part of himself that he's trying to hold on to and I think that particularly comes across whenever he thinks back about his dad and you know what his dad wanted for him which is general on was this great warrior this respected warrior the best swordsman in Gokuro or whatever and yet you know I guess the legacy that he passes down to his son is that he never wants his son to hold a sword. He never wants his son to have to be covered in blood and have blood on his hands and be the kind of man that his dad had to be. And there's just this sense of sadness, I think, in Ondal, particularly when he's lost, you know, he's lost who he used to be and now he's just trying to claw back something you know, after his mom dies and he goes off to the forest by himself and at the end of the drama where he steps up and does what he needs to to protect, you know, the woman that he loves, there's just this sadness like un underneath the warrior kind of front. And I really liked it. And I thought Nanu did a very good job. Um, I also wanted to mention another scene that I really loved that I feel just like totally covers that that kind of feel to the show, the melancholy, I suppose, but mixed with the romance. Um, there's this scene when Ondal is kind of coming back from this mad battle. And, you know, he's really been trying hard to be the kind of general and warrior that the princess needs her husband to be in the palace. Like, this is what she needs from him to gain the power that she wants for the royal family. And he goes off in this mad, like, series of wars and he loses himself like it's an interesting thing I suppose because I feel these kind of themes that this story is talking about with Ondal they're so modern <laughs> you know like it's this idea in you know if you watch a modern military drama the idea of PTSD and people being traumatized in a long-term way because of the bad things they've seen or the bad things they've done you know, that's such a, it's such an accepted part of modern life. And it's such a huge part, accepted part of our understanding of people who have to do these kind of things and go to war and fight or that just see traumatic things or experience them. But I think in history, you know, everyone was running around in these mad armies, murdering each other and fighting. And it's, I think it was really interesting to see those themes kind of explored in a period of history where you know all the main characters are warriors all the main characters are murdering each other at every turn or getting each other murdered or trying to poison each other or you know whatever it's just such a common way to gain power and you know gain more territory all that kind of stuff it's like an accepted part particularly of you know being upper class and and having that power and control and I thought it was really interesting kind of seeing the idea of, I mean, realistically, post-traumatic stress and this losing of self that Ondal goes through, I think, you know, particularly when he kind of loses himself and he kind of gets into that battle rage, which, you know, fair enough, he needs to survive these situations and he needs to do whatever he needs to do in order to do it. But it's a very interesting thing, the idea that he's a very good warrior. He's very good at it. He just doesn't have the heart for it. And when he comes back, you know, he's successful. He's done everything right. He's done a good job. 
but when he gets home, he is fucked. Like he's so fucked and he's kind of in the bath and he's still got blood streaked all over him. And, you know, he's just in the bath and his wife, so Gajin is sitting next to him and she's kind of realizing, <laughs> I think, the depths of what this is doing to him. Um, and that maybe it's, you know, it's not going that well for him. And it's this really quiet, beautiful scene. It really, really moved me. I found it just so quiet and lovely, but so heartbreakingly sad. Um, and, you know, Andal's sort of talking about how the water that they, you know, he drank in the well back when they, you know, before they came into the palace, before he'd ever murdered anybody, well, fought anybody in a war, or killed anyone or picked up a sword, was so sweet, the water that he had back then. And now the water is, you know, tinged with blood, which it literally is because he's fucking soaked in it head to toe. And it's just, Oh, I thought it was so powerful, but also very beautiful and very romantic and just heart crushingly sad. So I really loved that scene. Um, so the next thing on my list was just the love story. I really, really liked it. Um, and again, I kind of talked about it, but that meeting of two people who are at odds in what they need from the world and what they need from each other, but really love each other. They try to live together. It doesn't work. They can't live in the palace. They try to live apart. He, you know, fucks off back to the mountains. It doesn't work. They're both just so unhappy. And oh, I was so happy with the end. I was really not sure where this drama was going to go. Uh, all right. So I've just said here, I really liked the, the plotting and the political intrigue stuff. So I kind of said it before, but I really love it when Gajin takes up her mantle as princess and really goes head to head against the main big bad guy, which is Minister Go. Like that was really fun for me. I liked seeing her, you know, trying to outmaneuver him and him sometimes beating her and her sometimes beating him. It just felt like such a dangerous high stakes game. So I really enjoyed that. Um, I've said here I really love the themes about Ondal and his dad, which I've already said, but that was great. Um, so I really liked the second male lead way more than I expected. Um, I found him very interesting and intriguing. Uh, I don't know why I didn't kind of expect to, but he just like he has a lot of, I want to say charisma in the character, but I've got to say too, I don't feel like his full emotional journey fully hit home to me. It didn't quite make sense, but it was a very interesting kind of thing, I suppose, having this, uh, I guess having the person who realistically should be the perfect husband for her, except that, you know, obviously General Goh's, the second male lead, General Goh's dad is, you know, uh, Princess Gajin's main enemy, Mr. Go. I meant Minister Go, not Mr. Go. <laughs> oh gosh, I'm not explaining this very well. Um, but anyway, I really like the performance by Iji Hoon and I found it very intriguing and interesting. And like, I don't know if I was fully like, satisfied with the whole emotional arc but I really liked his character and the whole time I was watching the show I was very interested to see what his character was going to do and where he was going to go even if by the end I was kind of like hmm really <laughs> but that was fine so yeah I did enjoy him uh so I really loved the ending uh this is so I'm going to talk about the ending now I guess before I get into the stuff that I didn't love so much because I really loved the ending I found it very very satisfying and it made me feel a lot. It was really 
weirdly beautiful, I suppose, even though I gotta say, like, I fucking saw the twist coming from a mile away. <laughs> so uh, if you've watched it, you will know there's this scene where Ondal is like, you know, living in the mountains, hanging out, doing whatever. And he's got his monk friend who turns up every now and then and I don't know, he says something to him, whatever. And while the monk guy's hanging out at Ondal's house when Ondal isn't there, a whole bunch of assassins turn up. I can't remember where they came from. Were they from the royal court? Were they from Schiller? I don't know. Who knows? Anyway, uh, they turn up to kill Ondal and the monk is like, I'm Ondal. He's not Ondal, but that's fine. So Ondal turns back and finds, you know, comes back eventually and he's out in the woods and he finds a whole bunch of assassins lying around dead on the ground and he finds his monk friend dead on the ground. And Ondal's like, no, because like this guy, this poor guy is like at the end of his fucking tether. Like if one more person dies on poor Ondal, he's just like, he's, he's had it. He's just, he's, he's not doing well. So poor Andal is like sobbing away and kind of like digging this big grave. And then behind him, the monk just sort of pops up like a fucking daisy and is like, hey, Andal, what you doing? And Andal's like, you know, freaks out, understandably. He's like, oh my gosh, I thought you were dead. And the monk is like, oh, I just was using my, you know, my meditation powers to basically shut down his entire body. And it's this very dangerous and special technique you can do to basically be a living dead person like um and the whole time this was happening I was like one obviously Ondal is going to learn the skill and this is how he's going to get around at the ending and everything's going to be fine yes it was my first like sign of a happy ending so I was very pleased and secondly I was like oh my gosh Ondal was about to bury the monk alive and then the monk was going to wake up six feet under in the dirt and be stuck forever and then choke to death and die and I was just so hooked on how horrifying that possibility was that I just could not get on board with the monk kind of going up to Ondal and being like, ha ha ha, I was just faking my death. I was like, dude, you were about to get buried alive. Oh my gosh. So personally, I found that extremely traumatic, <laughs> even though it didn't actually happen. So as a writer, I, I'm sure there'll be other li uh, writers who are listening to this, or, you know, I feel like just story lovers, like anyone who loves the story and has watched or read enough stories knows straight away that as soon as a story <laughs> puts like kind of a flagpole on something like this, so you know, in this drama, it's the whole thing where the second last episode and suddenly the monk's like, hey, you know, I've got this ability to pretend that I'm dead. And so obviously, like, it's just a flag post, obvious that that is going to come into play in the finale of the drama. So I have to say, <laughs> I feel like this scene should have happened way earlier in the drama. Like it should have happened in like, I don't know, when bloody Ondal first met the monk and went off to be his little monk trainee and learn martial arts. Like that's when it should have happened because then as a viewer, we would have forgotten it had happened by now because we would have watched so much more of the drama that it would have been a real surprise when Ondal like pops up like a daisy at the very end of the drama after I might mention getting stabbed by 1000 arrows and bleeding out of his mouth but he's fine <laughs> don't fucking worry about it it's all good <laughs> so I mean that was crazy but also I was like oh thank goodness <laughs> so I really didn't care about the realities of that situation I was very glad that even though he'd been struck through Ondal had like a fucking pincushion he was all good totally fine nothing to worry about. So yeah, basically, I guess what I'm saying is I wish that Ondal had nearly buried the monk much earlier in the story because I feel like 
I feel like I wouldn't have had that quite so much in the back of my head going into the big, you know, um, battle scenes at the very end of the story. Um, but in saying that, I really liked, I really liked Ondal's death scene. Like, I mean, I don't know what him and Gajin were doing perched up on that wall if they didn't know for sure that the battle was over. Like, I don't know about that. That's fine. But when he saves her and jumps in front of her and gets absolutely pin cushioned and then is like slowly fucking dying. Well, as far as she knows and saying like he can't see and Bloody Guardian's reaction at this, like he's still like in front of her, kind of protecting her and blocking her view of what's going on. And she just fucking freaks out. And it was just the most gut-wrenching, saddest thing. I I feel like it was for me, it just hit me in the chest. I was so like, oh my gosh, it's just the worst. But also it was acted so well and it moved me like it really did. And then when, you know, the camera pans out and you realize the battle is over, all of Gajin's own soldiers have now like surrounded them, you know, to protect them. But she's still there huddled beneath basically her husband's massive dead body as far as she knows. And she's just, you hear her and she's just screaming. And I was just like, oh my gosh, it just felt like such a weighty thing you know, I guess in the progression of their romance. And it just felt so sad to me because I felt like they'd only just, just got their shit together. <laughs> um, so yeah, I found that incredibly powerful and weighty, I suppose, as a finale. It really, really worked for me. Um, and then the very last few scenes, you know, is Gajin sort of I don't know, wraps shit up at the palace, says goodbye to her dumb brother. Dumb. I'll talk about this in a moment. What a dumb guy. <laughs> and then she, you know, heads off into the mountains and she goes to um, Ondal's little mountain house and bloody Ondal is just there and he's all good and his memory's gone. But, you know, he's fine. <laughs> his, his body is fine, even though he got stabbed by 1,000 arrows. <laughs> But uh, I liked it. I was on board with it. I did not care if that wasn't logical. I was like, yes, he's alive. Yeah, he used his magic monk technique. Uh, so he used his, his kind of like meditation thing, this powerful technique that the monk has taught him. And he basically, once he got stabbed up by those arrows, he put his body into kind of like deep sleep, like stasis, like just turned it off, I suppose. Oh, my little cat just gave a meow. I don't know if you heard that. <laughs> um, and of course, it's a very dangerous thing, as the monk says. And he, because he was so close to death, he really has been through something pretty intense in terms of, I guess, his physical injuries. Um, Andal doesn't remember anything. He doesn't remember his name. He doesn't remember who he is. I loved all this scene. Like when Gajin sees him, like the look on her face, the way that she treats him, there's just this tenderness, but it's so like, I don't know. I found it really beautiful. Like the way she is around him and the way she's just like, follow me. And she starts just showing him places that meant something to them. And I don't know. I love the way he just follows her so unquestioningly, um, even though he doesn't recognize her or know what's going on. And is not like particularly super interested at this point. But I don't know. I just thought it was really beautiful. I don't know why. It was just lovely. I really, really liked it. Um, so they're kind of sitting up on this uh, mountain stone thing and 
you know, he's kind of asking who he is and she says, you know, that his name is Dal, which means moon and she points to the moon and he remembers that his name's Ondal and then he's asking who she is and she kisses him and this is the point where he remembers and I loved it. Like you can just see on his face this moment that he remembers who she is and it's sad because, you know, there's this tear in his eye and you know also that in some ways... He had a bit of a fresh start, like all the trauma, the crushing trauma that Ondal has been through was wiped away. And he had this innocence to him, this sort of jumpy sort of spring to the way that he's moving. And you can see when he remembers that it is a weight, like it is a weight. But then also to remember her, to remember Gajin and their history together, like it's worth it. So there's this like bittersweetness to the end because of, I think, all this trauma that they've both been through. And like I said earlier, like I feel like they'll go to bed at night and they will both have some severe nightmares for quite a few years. And that feels very, very sad to me. But also I thought it was beautiful and it really moved me. Um, so that's all I'm going to say about stuff I loved, even though, you know, there was other stuff I loved. But I'll get onto the stuff that I didn't love so much. Okay, so A River Where the Moon Rises, stuff that I didn't love quite so much. None of this really, like, fully bothered me. There was, I had no, like, major fundamental issues with anything. There was just, I felt like a few loose threads. But the main one, it's not really the main one. One, one of the things. <laughs> there are so many weird wigs in this drama. Oh, the hair was not always very good. Um, so, I feel like this is one of the true miracles of the Joseon like dynasty era is that all the dudes yes they had top knots which means long hair and you know modern guys who have short hair in order to act the role of a man with a top knot have to wear a wig but they also had I'm not sure how to pronounce it but I think it's like mungyong mungyong bands so like you know that's the the black sort of um the band that runs around men during the Joseon dynasty's forehead. Uh, so peasant men would wear just like, you know, a piece of material tied around their heads or slaves or whatever, but noble men would wear one of these mungyon bands. And they're fucking brilliant because they hide the part of the wig <laughs> where the wig ends and your real hair begins or your forehead begins. And therefore, every time I look at a dude in a Joseon, like, set drama with a wig on, I'm not like look at that man in that wig. Whilst, unfortunately, in this drama where the men are not wearing mungyeon bands, they are wearing just, you know, I guess, gogoro hairstyles, which is basically a top knot, which is a bit up and a bit down and a bit over here and a little bit of a fringe if they want one. Um, and kind of like a puffy, a puff, puffy puff on their head. Every single time there was a dude on the screen, I was just, you know, it was just very, very obvious to me that this was a man in a wig, that this man had a wiggy wig on his head and it was the wiggiest wig that I ever saw. Like, I'm, I don't know. It wasn't for me. So I feel like the kind of hairstyles that were going on, not so much my thing, like the half up, half down. For the dudes, I mean, the women all looked lovely. I feel like they all had long enough hair that it just wasn't so obvious that, say, there's a hair piece thrown in there. And also, actually, all the women's hair looked amazing. It was quite great. So anyway, you know, that's not a big issue. That's no one's fault. There's not much that anyone can do about the fact that they were, they were wigs. 
They had to put wigs on their head. So they did it. They did the best that they could. Uh, I feel like Ondal's wig wasn't the worst wig. I wouldn't say it was the best wig I ever saw in my life, but it wasn't like as bad as some of the wiggy wigs in this drama. So I could kind of turn my brain off and just be like, that's Ondal's hair um, as much as I could. <laughs> All right. So some loose threads. These aren't like big issues for me, but, I, you know, why not? I'll talk about them because they were in my head when I finished watching it. So one thing I mean, maybe I missed something. I don't know. But I felt like when Ondal, you know, Ondal goes from a mountain dude who's never held a sword and he's certainly never had any education around martial arts. And, you know, Gajin turns up and she's like, I'm going to, you know, take over the palace and raise up this tribe and I need you to be, you know, who you're meant to be or who you were originally destined to be, which is a general of this whole clan, like the head of this clan. So she brings him to see this monk dude um, who was friends with her mom a long time ago and asks this monk to teach Ondal martial arts, basically. And I'm not sure if I got confused, but I felt like Ondal was literally hanging out with this monk for about three days. <laughs> and two of those days, I felt like he spent meditating in a cave. And then one of those days, I felt like he did a very short montage about how to sword fight. And then I feel like he had to go like save Guardian or do something. Yeah, he had to run back home and do something. Um, and I just wish, I really wish, because I feel like so much of this story and, you know, the original folktale is the idea that very unexpectedly, this man who everyone thinks is a fool turns out to be an incredible soldier, an incredible, you know, amazing warrior, and eventually an incredible general. And I get that there's almost like this supernatural, like strength element with Ondal and this, like, you know, he just is so naturally takes to sword fighting that within, you know, a couple of days, he's almost like on par with Guardian, who's been training her whole life and who is super deadly and scary. So like, I get that there's this elevated kind of level to his, I don't know, his skills development, but I wish he could have stayed with this monk, like, I don't know, six months, a year. And then if he'd come out of it, after that and being like the best swordsman in the whole world, I would have been like, fuck yeah. <laughs> so as it was, I was like, hang on, <laughs> it's been two minutes. <laughs> but also, I don't really care. <laughs> so I'm just mentioning that because it crossed my mind quite a few times while I was watching it. But it's, you know, it's not something I'm really going to be super upset and bothered by either. All right. So the next thing on my list, I've written the king, both of them. What douches. So I've already talked at length about what a douche the older king was. So this is Gajin's dad. But the drama flashes forward. So eventually poor Ondal is at the end of his tether. He's breaking apart and he kind of heads off back to the mountains and she stays in the palace. And we skip forward, I think like four years. And Gajin's younger brother has since grown up. Uh, so he's a young man now, which I really enjoyed when the Schiller King calls him the baby king. <laughs> I don't know why I thought that was funny, but I did. Uh, he's not a baby. He's like 20 something, I guess. I don't know. And so this is Gudgeon's little brother. Yeah. So he's ascended to the throne, but, and I get it. I actually found it very interesting. The idea that Gudgeon and her brother have some issues. It made a lot of sense to me, to be honest, that he is unbelievably terrified of 
her power and influence and ability to undermine him, that he will always be, you know, the youngest silly brother and she will always know what to do. Like she's so much more experienced and capable. And even worse than that, she holds the respect of all his ministers who are, you know, on his side and not like total enemies. And the people fucking love her because she's constantly riding out at the head of armies and saving them from invading, you know, battles and armies and shit. So she's, I get it. I get why he feels so intimidated by her. And unfortunately, because he's so intimidated by her, he's so defensive against her and he constantly treats her like she is undermining him when she's not or treats her like she wants his seat, like his throne. Um, and I found that like a really, really interesting conflict, actually. So I didn't have a problem with that, even though I was like, this guy's a douche, but I could totally get it. Like this wasn't something that didn't make sense. I felt like it made so much sense to his character. But the thing that I thought was so crappy <laughs> was the fact that, so Gajin's little brother is kind of like, um, I want this extra territory that Shilla has since taken off us. You know, it belongs to Gokoro. You have to go out there and take it back. Um, and I can't remember how it works or whatever, but she gets thrown in prison because she won't go and retrieve General Ondal from the mountains. She's like, he cannot be in a battle again. He won't pick up a sword. Like, he's done. And she's trying to protect him, and she's trying to protect Ondal with her life. And her little fucking brother is literally about to behead this woman because she won't go and get General Ondal for this particular quest that the king wants to achieve. Ondal, of course, hears about it, rushes back to the capital, saves his wife, and then they both have to go out to war, which is what, you know, Gajin was trying to protect her husband from ever having to do. Um, but the king, it turns out, so they go off to war, you know, they win. General Andal dies uh, very horrifically, very sadly, very powerfully. And then Gajin turns back up to the palace and, you know, the king has actually sort of I guess this is supposed to be the resolution of the conflict between the siblings is that the king hears that his sister and Andal are in trouble and he marches out with something like, I don't know, fucking 30,000 troops or something to save them. And in doing so, he's the one who actually heads up the battle against the Shilla king and he's the hero who wins the day. And it's not really Gajin and Andal because they're sort of doing their own thing behind the scenes and, you know, everyone's dying. Um, so the king feels, I suppose, fine finally secure that he has achieved something for himself. He's done something for himself. And they have, you know, this really nice moment in the palace before Gajin leaves to go and be a hermit in the mountains when she still thinks Ondal is dead. And, you know, he's kind of like, I'm really sorry that I was such an idiot little brother to you. And I'm like, yeah, you were. And they share a lolly, like a little, you know, little sweet. And then she leaves. And I was like, hang on. <laughs> This little brother king has murdered your husband and he didn't need Ondal to achieve this thing at all because he had 30 fucking thousand soldiers lying around that he took on this mission. He could have done it himself. <laughs> and I was like, I don't understand why she's not slightly more annoyed at him other than it was one of the last scenes of the drama and they had no time <laughs> to kind of delve into that conflict. But I was like, through his own kind of, I guess, being intimidated of her, this little brother king literally got her husband killed. Like, it is his fault. It's his fault. He did this. And I felt like that was very uncool. And I feel like at the end, 
I don't really feel like his apology matched the fact that he'd got Gajin's husband killed. Of course, it turned out that he hadn't and her husband was fine. But he didn't know that. Gosh. So, yeah, I thought he was a bit of a douche. But I also found his character quite interesting. So, uh, the next thing on my list of stuff that oh, didn't fully, fully work for me was even though I actually found General Gon. General Go, sorry, I've written General Gone. General Go, the second male lead, to be a very intriguing, interesting character. I was constantly interested to know what he was going to do. Is he going to go full bad? Is he going to betray them? Is he going to not betray them? And I was very interested, particularly like during the big coup when he and his dad like super go for it. Like they super try to take over Gokuro and they try and kill everybody. And it was intense and I loved the aftermath of this stuff as well I thought it was so cool and just really interesting like you know General Go's dad dies and General Go just turns crazy like he's so upset all their plans have fallen through and his dad's dead and he does not handle it well and I found it all very interesting but I did kind of find there to be some inconsistencies in the overview because I feel like at the start he's in love with Gajin, you get the impression when he sees her again, you know, after she's been an assassin and grown up and turns up out of the blue, he's like, oh my gosh, my first love from when I was, you know, a lot younger isn't dead and is still alive. And he loves her fiercely, like fully. It kind of comes out of nowhere. He loves her so much that he screams at her when she doesn't want to marry him. And he just cannot understand why she doesn't want to marry him. He's so hurt and like crying and sobbing and shouting at her not to leave him, basically. So it's like, it's, just, it's very intense, his love for her. And then he starts dating the, the store owner, who was another character I found very intriguing and liked a lot even though I haven't talked about it that much. Um, But yeah, he starts dating her and at first you're like, okay, she's there. She's in his face. She's very pretty and she's devoted to him. So of course he is. But then he starts talking about loving her and about caring for her. And there's a couple of scenes where he literally turns away from the princess towards the store owner and like takes the store owner's side and stuff like that. And it really, really feels that in the lead up to this big coup where General Go and his dad try and take over the whole palace, that General Go's feelings for the princess just sort of seem to dissipate. And he just seems to have thrown all his love and feelings onto the store owner and I was like well all right that was really fast there's no residual kind of longing or confusion on his half he's just sort of like oh on to the next thing then I got rejected and then um you know when this whole coup fails and General Go has to run off to Shiloh with the store owner and he just turns into basically a good-for-nothing alcoholic for four years and then in the end he just he can't let it go that his dad's dead he can't let go what happened and suddenly I don't know. You know, he hears the princess is in trouble and he's like, I love her <laughs> and I don't love you, store owner. And I was like, hang on, what? What? You know, I just, I just felt he was a, I just, I thought it was strange, I guess, that because then at the end, you know, he's just totally for the princess. And even when he's fucking dying in this very long, bloody death scene and the poor store owner's like, did you even for one moment love me at all? And he's like, nah, <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> I only love the princess. And I was like, that's so sad and mean. But also I was like, I think that I don't know if I misread the middle section of the drama but it really came across to me that he had just given up, like cleanly given up on the princess in a way that felt very abrupt to me and very strange. 
But then it was like, he hadn't actually. And I think they should have just had it the whole time that, yeah, he was with the store owner, but he could never let the princess go out of his heart. And then I would have believed this whole dying for her. I would have felt a lot more at the end, this idea that he tried so hard to give up his feelings and to love someone else, but he couldn't do it. And she was always in his heart and he, you know, couldn't change that but it just felt a little bit jarring as it was it felt like he did love her and then he didn't and then he did again and then he died and that was basically his story <laughs> so it wasn't a big deal just because I found him so intriguing and interesting like but it didn't kind of fully ring true the whole time to me with his sort of inconsistent feelings flopping back and forth <laughs> uh so what else oh I, this is so small, but I'm going to mention it because I'm here talking about it. Um, so when General Go is, you know, his kind of death scene, Gajin, so General Go and Mo Yong have saved Gajin from certain death. Mo Yong has been, um, you know, slashed up and can't really walk any further. So the whole thing is she's like, leave me behind. And they're like, no, never. We're never going to leave you behind. And Gajin very specifically is like, I'm never going to leave you behind. And then they all sort of like sit down in this bamboo grove and they've sent a signal to Ondal and they wait. And the Schiller army turns up and, you know, everyone's fighting and this is how General Go gets, you know, chopped up and killed and he has his death scene. And Ondal turns up at the last minute and saves them all and it's fine. And so, you know, Gajin is really like, you know, she's sad to the second male lead. She's kind of like, oh, you're you know, a bit of a douche, but, you know, you died for me and I feel really sad about this whole situation. And then she walks off and then Ondal's kind of like, I don't know. <laughs> He's kind of just like, yeah, I don't really like you, but, you know, good one, <laughs> I guess, about saving his life. And I was like... Ondal, isn't General Go the one who murdered your mother? I'm pretty sure he knew that. I'm pretty sure I knew that. Is that what happened? And I was like, are we never going to talk about the fact that that's what happened? I'm pretty sure that's what happened. Um, but that never gets mentioned again. And Ondal, maybe he didn't know. I thought he knew, but he just, he's cool. He's fine with it. And he walks off because he's let that stuff go. And then Gajin and Ondal get on a horse and leave the store owner to look after General Go as he dies. And I was like, I thought you guys weren't going to leave the store owner behind because she, her belly got slashed open and she's all alone in the countryside. <laughs> they just fucking left her there. And then a lot later we find out she's good. She went to um, Bekje and she got some money and she's like reopened a, a merchant business and it's all fine. And I was like, but she was stabbed up in a, in a bamboo forest and the whole the whole thing was that she was dying, but it's fine. Anyway, it really didn't matter. Uh, so then the very last thing I mentioned that I thought uh, was, it was okay, but I was like, eh, was so Gajin has a best friend who's an assassin um, as well, who I really liked this character. I, I really liked her interactions with Gajin and I liked her interactions with Ondal as well. Um, but she kind of like, Ondal has this friend who's a dude from his like little ghost village who has the worst wig <laughs> in the whole world. It's called Poong whatever. I can't remember what his name was. It's just the worst wig. Like, I felt so sorry for this man that he had to wear this thing on his head. It was so unflattering. But I also felt like he was the biggest non-character at all. Like, Gajin's friend has, like, I don't know, she has a lot of emotional things to do to be a foil or, you know, to Ondal and talk to them and have her own even emotional arc. And then she just has to get married to this this guy in this awful wig. And I just felt like, wow, there's no chemistry between these two. He's just the biggest non-character in the world. And I feel like they could have found someone better for her to get married off to, was my opinion. 
Um, but that's it. That's it from me for stuff that I didn't love so much. And that's it from me on this whole drama, uh, Moon Where the River Rises. <laughs> That's incorrect. River where the moon rises. I fucking do that every time. Uh, so I really enjoyed it, as I've said and talked about at length, and I think I'll stop talking about it now. But I really, really liked it. Uh, so that's it from me on River Where the Moon Rises, the 2021 20 episode historical romance epic, I'll call it. <laughs> Thanks for listening. So now it is time for my random thing of the week. And I actually just wanted to tell you guys a little bit more about what I found out about the folktale uh, Princess Pyongong and Ondal the Fool. Uh, because I, I don't know, I find it very interesting. Um, so this is a real thing. Uh, well, it's set very specifically in a real period in history. So both the kings, um, the dad king and the little shit brother king in this drama are both real people. They both existed um, and, you know, lived and died um, in Korean history. History. And this folktale was then, you know, set in this period. Um, sorry, the cat is like trying to eat my foot. Stop that. Um, I'm just getting very off topic there. So anyway, I found a version of the folktale on a website called korea.net. And I just wanted to read out some of this to you because I find it very interesting. So here it is. And I think it was originally like recorded. The folktale itself first appeared recorded in history, I think in the 1100s from memory is what I just read. <laughs> um, so here we go. So the tale begins in the royal palace of King Pyongwon of Gogoro. So that's King Pyongwon is the main dad in this drama who ruled from 559 to 590. Among his children was Princess Pyongang, a chronic crybaby whose crying was so persistent and got on the king's nerves so much that he often threatened to marry her off to Ondal the idiot if she didn't stop. Ondal was an infamous beggar who lived outside the palace gates and was reportedly as ugly as a donkey. He was often seen begging for food for himself and his blind mother. His ugliness, dirty clothes, and seemingly foolish behavior earned him the ridicule of everyone who knew him, as well as the nickname, The Idiot, also translated as The Fool quite often. All right, back to the tale. <laughs> when the princess turned 16, her father attempted to marry her off to a wealthy and powerful noble. His stubborn daughter, however, put up fierce resistance and insisted that the king keep his promise of marrying her off to Ondal. Bewildered and angry, King Pyongwon said he had just teased her, that it was only a joke, but the princess refused to relent. Their argument ended with the princess leaving the palace to roam the streets in search of her future husband. When she entered Ondal's humble home, Princess Pyongang immediately explained to his weak mother that she wanted to marry her son, who was out fetching tree bark for food. His mother identified the princess as a person of noble upbringing by her perfume and soft skin. The mother explained that she and her son were very poor and that a woman of high birth had no place there. The princess, however, showed no change in her determination. When Ondal arrived, the princess once again explained her reason for visiting. Ondal was instantly suspicious, however, and angrily sent her away. After the princess spent the night outside his house and offered to buy him a new house, food, land, and a horse with the money she earned by selling her gold ring, Ondal was soon won over by her sincerity and, presumably, by her cash. <laughs> Sorry, back to the tale. 
The princess not only brought Ondal and his mother out of poverty, but also paid for his education and gave him professional training in the martial arts. Ondal, who ended up extremely talented and far from being an idiot, quickly became an excellent soldier. He went on to excel in an annual martial arts competition, so much so that he caught the eye of King Pyongwon, who asked him for his name. When Ondal gave his reply, the king was so taken aback and impressed that he made the former beggar an honorary general in the royal army. Ondal soon displayed his bravery and military prowess when armies from what the northern from what the oh so from the northern Zhou Zhao oh my goodness sorry dynasty in China invaded Gogoro lands. Legend has it that he single-handedly slew more than twenty soldiers in an instant, a sight that inspired his entire army to victory. Ondal the idiot had officially become a military hero and the recognized son-in-law of King Pyongwan. When the king passed away, he was succeeded by his eldest son, Yongyang. One day, General Ondal asked his new king if he could lead an army to reclaim lands in the south that had been taken over by the Shilla kingdom. Convinced that Gogoro needed to strengthen its southern presence, King Yongyang, uh, Yongyang <laughs> consented to the request. Unfortunately, the brave beggar-turned-hero never returned from the campaign, for he was shot with an arrow and met his end near Mount Akasan. Ondal had since oh Ondal sorry guys <laughs> Ondal has since been remembered in Korea as a rags to riches symbol. So that was just a retelling of the folktale from Korea.net. And I also found another piece um, from a very interesting website called Rejected Princesses, which is an interesting topic. Uh, and I just wanted to read the very end of this version of the uh, folktale because, again, it relates to the events in the drama and you can maybe understand some of the choices in what the drama did. So this is the same deal. Um, Ondal goes off to war and then I'll just read the end of this new folktale. Eventually, Ondal was killed on Mount Akka. Uh, according to legend, when it came time to move his coffin for burial, no one could budge it. Pyongang knelt beside the coffin, putting her arms around it, and gently whispered to her late husband, the question of life and death has already been decided, so why don't we go back, my dear? The coffin became unstuck, and General Andal was buried soon thereafter. So that probably makes more sense, like if you don't know the folktale about that scene in the drama at the end after um, Ondal dies and, you know, everyone's having a bit of trouble rolling his, his death cut up the hill, which is actually an extremely sad moment. So there you go. That is just a random reading of the folktale to gain a little bit more understanding behind, I guess, the inspiration for this drama. So now it's time for my something I'm loving this week section. And oh my gosh, I read a book. It's amazing. <laughs> I really, really want to highly, highly recommend this book to anyone who likes reading. It's so good. It just like, oh, it made me sob, but it's so beautiful. And it made me so happy as well. It was so moving. Um, so the book is called Lonely Castle in the Mirror. It has come out quite recently, so it's uh, it's a Japanese book that's been translated into English recently. Um, I'm not sure when the original Japanese version came out in Japan, but it has just been such a, I guess, big seller in Japan, like just a really big hit that it has very recently been translated and I think just 
you know, <laughs> been sent out into every other country as well. So the author is called, and I'm sure my Japanese pronunciation will be bad, uh, is called Mizuki Sujimura. Sujimura, I suppose. Um, so Mizuki is M-I-Z-U-K-I and Sujimura is T-S-U-J-I-M-U-R-A. And the book is called Lonely Castle in the Mirror. It not only has <laughs> the version that I've got anyway, the most fucking gorgeous cover I have ever seen in my life. Like I am obsessed with the way this book looks. It's so aesthetically beautiful, um, but it is gorgeous. It's such a gorgeous story. I really, I don't know. I, I always get nervous recommending stuff to people because I know everyone has such different taste, but I found this book extremely quiet, thoughtful, beautiful, moving, and oh, I sobbed at the end. I really did, but it it's bittersweet and mainly sweet. Um, it's certainly a, you know it's a happy, beautiful book, but it's 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 gorgeous. Oh my gosh! <laughs> so the story is about a young girl in Japan called Kokoro. I'm not sure how to pronounce that either. Kokoro. Um, so she has had an issue. Something bad has happened at her school, and she is no longer going to school. Her parents can't kind of really connect with her and understand what's going wrong um, and don't really realize that an incident has happened. Um, so the book is slightly, you know, I guess it certainly has themes around bullying, but not only that specifically. I think it's about people kind of being at odds, I suppose, with the world. <laughs> so Kokoro is kind of... Um, stuck at home because she can't go to school she kind of stops leaving the house and she's at home every day by herself because her parents are at work and suddenly the mirror in her room begins to glow and when she goes through she turns up in this unbelievably beautiful kind of western style fairy fairy tale castle and in the castle are I think it's six or yeah six other kids all similar ages within the same three years, you know, to each other. And all of them are pretty quiet about what's going on with them. But what I guess the main character realizes pretty quickly is that none of them are going to school, but all of them have different kind of things and reasons. Um, and they're met in this like fantasy castle by a little girl wearing a wolf mask who tells them that they can come there every day between like nine and five and they have to leave at five or a huge wolf will gobble them up. And if they can find it, there is a key hidden in the castle that opens a wishing room that enables one of them to wish for whatever their heart desires. And that's all I'm going to tell you. That's the general setup. It's it's very quiet and beautiful. It really reminded me a lot of the um, shoujo anime that I've watched a lot of and I guess the manga that I've read, like Japanese comics, um, particularly like that kind of very gentle exploration of I feel like school age relationships, and I don't mean romance, I mean like the way that you might feel very awkward when you're trying to talk to someone else, or you might overthink the things that you say and how you relate to other people. And, you know, you might be desperate to make friends, but you don't really know how. And I feel like there's such a, 
Ah, a focus on these very minute kind of emotions tied up around these sort of awkward social interactions that I've read about a lot in, I feel like, um, you know, seen in anime and read in, in manga. And I feel like this book really captures that, that awkwardness of, I don't want to say just the age, because I feel like it's something that can extend all the way through your life, unfortunately. But yeah, it's just so quiet in the way that it explores this minutiae of interactions between people and what things can mean to people when you say things and I don't know it's a very thoughtful book and it ends up being for me anyway beautiful and powerful and moving and gorgeous and certainly has like a real feel of some of the other you know it's it's grounded in reality but there's this fantasy element to it I'm sure it'll get made into a movie or an anime or something like that and I'm going to Watch the hell out of that, I'll tell you that. Um, but I, I hugely, hugely suggest it. So it's been released in um, so outside of Japan as an adult book. But, you know, the main characters are very young. They are, you know, teens in high school or, you know, like middle middle school, whatever, um, in Japan. And I feel like it's the kind of thing that young people, like I feel like it could be young adult fiction, but also it's the kind of classic I don't know, fairy tale feel that would just appeal to anyone of any age. Um, but I think it's something that, you know, if you have kids, you could share with them. Or if you're, you know, an adult yourself, you could still read it no matter your age. It's beautiful. I really, really loved it. All right. I'm going to stop gushing about it now, but I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm obsessed. I'm obsessed. <laughs> That's what I am. So much so that I can no longer speak. Uh, so that was Lonely Castle in the Mirror by the author Mizuki Tsujimura. So that brings me to the very end of this episode and it also brings me to the part of the show where I say an enormous thank you to my Patreon supporters who do support the show on Patreon. Your support of my show is very, very cool um, and it means a lot to me, um, especially I have to say lately over the last month I've um, been struggling with my workload a lot um, and I've kind of had a conversation with everyone on my Patreon about that and so I guess I'm just extra, extra grateful for that support at the moment. Uh, so I want to give a huge shout out and thank you to new patrons. So Lisa C, Louise Ryan, Lynette Johnson, and Jeanette Sanchez. Thank you guys all so very much. I really appreciate you supporting the show like that. Um, so other than that, that's it from me for this week and I'll be back next week with a whole new episode. So thank you everyone who listened right to the very end. Wow, how nice. And hopefully you'll all tune again, tune in again <laughs> next week for another episode of K-Drama Waffling to be sure. That's definitely what's going to happen. Um, all right. So this is Lee Evie. Until next week, over and out.